From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Bloomberg News is reporting that China is said to offer a path to eliminate the U.S. trade imbalance to zero by the year 2024. That trade imbalance stood last year at $323 billion. To give us a sense of what this means for markets, we are fortunate once again to have in our studios Kathleen Gaffney is still with us. She is a director of Diversified Fixed Income and at Eaton Vance based in Boston, but she is fortunately in here with our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So Kathleen, this seems big. Um, it's something that I think a lot of the market has been waiting for. What is your initial read? This is big, and it looks like it's impacting bonds right now, and that means that the Fed is back on. This is volatility in markets. It changes quickly, and the markets tend to react in big ways. We recently had more dovish comments, and the market took all of the rate hikes out and even started to think about a cut. Here we are. Things are right back on. What's interesting to me is you are getting a little bit of yield curve uh, flattening again. So to your point, which is what you would expect, right? I mean, the two-year yield is the one that's reacting the most. In other words, people are looking at this information and saying, if there is a trade agreement, that will give the market the boost it needs to continue the growth, and that will give the Fed the reason to continue hiking rates, which is a negative for the bond investors. It is. It makes it very challenging. It's a headwind, but the fundamentals, a growing economy is always good for everyone. And that's, but that's consistent with your call. You've not been looking for a rate cut. Is that true? I have not been looking right. for a rate cut. The, the Fed is on a mission. This clears the way uh, for them to get there. The cost of money should not be zero. So how many more hikes are there going to be this year? Well, we still have a lot of uncertainty out there. Uh, we still have Brexit. Um, but we could learn a lot just in the next week or two. You remove that uncertainty, and the global growth story is not just the U.S. and China. It might be Europe, too, and that's the rest of the world. Well, but let's talk about that, because honestly, it seems like this has the potential to affect emerging markets, uh, potentially even more than the U.S., because China is slowing. If you remove the uncertainty of U.S.-China trade uh, skirmishes, that could really give a boost elsewhere. Does this make you double down on your bet that emerging markets are going to outperform this year in credit? I don't know about double down because we're already there. We've, we've believed that this is where it's going, mainly because the valuations are there and the fundamentals are there. Many emerging markets, not all of them, 
um, in particular, Mexico and Brazil, where inflation has been coming down. So that's a positive for fixed income investors, where inflation is coming down and growth is supportive. That's where you're going to see returns that are higher than what the developed market uh, uh, yields are likely to experience as rates move higher. So how about the emerging markets in Asia, maybe given this news in general, is there any aura, if you will, that an improved China, China trade, uh, trans-Pacific trade with China, are there economies and emerging markets in that region of the world that you're looking at? Definitely. This really opens up that market. Um, you've, you've got competition going on right now. China's saying, we're going to spend. That means living standards and income are going to rise there, and they'll be looking to be buying elsewhere around Asia opens it up in a really big way. We like in India and Indonesia because there's good reform potential there, but now this is a much broader support for emerging markets. So here's what I'm, I'm trying to understand, the dollar. Uh, understandably, it would weaken on this news, right? I mean, the idea being that it, China and, and the rest of the world would strengthen, and, and particularly Europe, as you're saying, because China is such a major trade partner with them. I, I'm just wondering, though, if the Fed hikes more, uh, trying to put it all together is kind of making my head spin. It does. There's just a lot going on. But if you just focus on what's what's really important, and that is that fiscal spending has picked up and the budget deficit is, is rising. So that uh, will weigh on the dollar. You've also got Europe, which if we've got global growth going and you have less concern about tariffs on Europe or China, it, it clears the decks and that might remove uncertainty for Europe. And that means interest rate differentials gives Draghi or who, a little more room to reduce buying. And so you could see rates moving up in Europe as well. I think this is really big for fixed income. So, so you think and you think it's going to be a net negative for fixed income? In terms of returns, yes. But it gets us back to normal, which is just where we want to be. You mentioned just, and just briefly, you mentioned Brexit. Still uncertainty. Any call there real briefly? I, I always try to make it as simple as possible. This is so complicated. I think uh, Theresa May has done what she needs to do, which is honor what the vote said. But... Things have changed a lot over the two years, and I think that there's more acceptance. The millennials that you've added, I think a million and a half millennials who can now vote. Um, if we go to a second referendum, I think you will see remain. Really? Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your patience. Kathleen Gaffney, Director of Diversified Fixed Income and Eaton Vance. Really interesting commentary. It does seem like this news is a big deal for debt markets as well as all equity markets as well. As the government shut down, which is the longest on record, stretches into the 28th day, a big question emerges. Which employees are hurt most by this who are either being furloughed or not paid? Joining us now to talk about the composition of people who are employed on and, de and defend, uh, depend on the federal government for their income is Paul Light, uh, professor of public service at NYU, New York University. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Paul, thank you so much for being here. 
really interesting uh, focus you highlighted in a recent Wall Street Journal article that there has been a growing roster of contracted employees of the federal government, even while the uh, full-time uh, roster stays stagnant. Why? Well, we use contractors and grantees as well um, as a surge tank uh, in a surge tank model. So during wars and economic crises, when we're pumping the economy with stimulus and we're, when we're buying weapons, we're fighting battles, we go to the contractors. The federal workforce, full-time equivalent workforce, has been at about 2 million uh, since 1950. And there is a de facto ceiling on the number of feds you can hire. Uh, you don't. You can exceed that by 100,000 here and there over time, but contractors provide the real slack in the system. Uh, they expand quickly, the numbers expand quickly, and they contract quickly. Surge, compress, surge, compress. So, so what types of jobs typically are being contracted out these days? You know, you'd think it would be metal benders, uh, people who make stuff. It's not. About two-thirds of federal contract employees are delivering services, whether that's consulting, whether that's computer programming, back office work. Uh, they're doing soil testing for the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, they're doing vehicle repairs. Uh, they run the repair depots for the Department of Defense. Uh, there's a, a misperception here that it's all things you buy at the store. It's not. It's a lot of labor that we're buying, and that's where you get these big numbers of people who work for the federal government indirectly uh, as contractors. How many people is that? Overall, for the entire federal government, 4.1 million, by uh, my contractors. estimate. Contract, uh, full-time equivalent contract employees. So uh, there have been a number of articles talking about how these 4.1 million contractors, or a subset of them, are not getting any income as a result of this partial government shutdown, uh, and that uh, there's a question of whether they will be uh, compensated, whether they'll have more work later, and then it'll just be uh, a wash in the end. Or, or what, what do you think is going to happen with these contracts? You know, federal employees are now guaranteed by law. Uh, President Trump signed it yesterday, I believe, day before yesterday, maybe. Uh, any, any Fed who is uh, working right now but not getting paid, they're going to get a paycheck at the end of it all. Contractors, we're not sure. Depends on the, the business. I mean, if you're a big consulting firm, are you going to front them some money if they're not doing anything? I mean, businesses have a different uh, pressure, right? So the people who are working for contractors but not doing anything, I mean, they're on the payroll but they're uh, idled, I don't see that they get paid at the end of all of this. Do they... What types of recourse, if any, do you think they have? I would think going up against the government would be something quite difficult for a small shop that you just suggested. You know, if you got no work order from the federal government, you've been told to stand down like we have at the Federal Emergency Management Agency. You've been given a stop work order. That's on you as the contractor. The federal government is going to step in and help you give your employees, uh, you know, back pay for work they didn't do. You know, these are businesses. They rise and fall based on their income and flow. So somebody would argue, I mean, they're contractors, so they should expect this. Sometimes work comes and sometimes work goes. And a lot of the companies that we're talking about are not mom and pop shops, but are uh, the formerly named Blackwaters of the world who are actually doing military complex uh, work. I'm just wondering, can you give us a sense of the breakdown at all of, of you know, big versus small? And, and also, you know, yeah. whether, what, you know, whether these contractors have other clients or is it really just the government paying for them? Uh, fully. Great, uh, great question. About 25% of the contract employees are working for small businesses. 
uh, a very large number. Obviously, they're working for large businesses, and they're often operating under sole source contracts. The real question here is whether the federal government is going to try to protect contract employees who are in essential jobs. Uh, for example, 250,000 or so contractors, we think, work for what's known as top secret America. They're doing the high-end intelligence analysis down in Virginia. They're doing a lot of surveillance activities under contract. You don't want to lose those analysts. So the question here will be whether the federal government will step in and try to maintain the strength of some of these big, big firms that provide a lot of high-end analysis and consulting. So what has been the discussion in Congress since the shutdown started, or maybe even before the shutdown, about that topic? I, I suspect that you're going to have some very high-end workers, entities working for the federal government that are going to say, listen, I expect to get paid. You can't afford to lose me. I don't know what's going on. You know, uh, Congress doesn't really pay a great deal of uh, attention to the contract workforce. It's not on the agenda. We spend a lot of time focusing on feds. We know everything about the federal employees down to their shoe size. We know very little about contract employees, very little. I'm struck by this idea where you started the conversation saying that contractors, uh, the ranks of them expanded during wartime and other extraordinary situations. We're not in an extraordinary situation right, right now, but the, the, the ranks of, of contractors have continued to rise or stayed at the elevated levels. Well, they, it's compressed a little bit, but not as much as you, you'd expect. The end of the Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the, the major fighting, uh, did drop the number of contractors by three, 400,000. But the recent increases in military spending have upped the numbers. So we're making more stuff, and we're doing more analysis. We're going to build a new missile defense system, as uh, President Trump said yesterday. Um, so the contract workforce is starting to surge as uh, President Trump pursues this expanded uh, uh, military presence. You know, it seems that you know this is a situation the contractors and the government it mutually dependent. Absolutely. Um, and I can't. I, you know, I, my question to you was going to be: Do you think the shutdown will change that relationship? I'm not sure it will, because it seems like the contractors depend upon the government and the government depends upon them. So do you have any sense of whether that relationship or interdependency may change? You know, we've had this government industrial complex, as I call it, uh, since the very beginning of our country. Uh, contractors, uh, federal uh, employees, uh, federal soldiers standing side by side on the battlefield. Uh, that's been the history of this. And, and we had contractors uh, delivering the mail at the very beginning of uh, our nation. I, I expect uh, it to continue. I, I, may, I may argue, I could argue that we'll have somewhat of a downturn in the number of federal employees uh, as contractors step in more and more, that that's a protective uh, approach for future shut shutdowns. We're normalizing the use of shutdowns as a regular way of resolving budget disputes. And there may be a shift somewhat to contractors because they are, in fact, uh, more likely to not get paid during a shutdown, which is the point, I guess. It's like contractors are the, the temp workers of the, uh, the government complex. Absolutely. And uh, from the very bottom, in terms of serving soup, all the way up to fighting wars and deploying troops. Wonderful. Uh, absolutely. Thank you very much. Fantastic discussion. Uh, professor Paul Light, Paul. Paul Light Goddard, Professor of Public Service at New York University here in New York City.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You know, I like out-of-consensus calls as much as anybody, and our next guest has a whopper of an out-of-consensus call. Dr. Brendan Brown is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, coming to us uh, from London. Dr. Brown, welcome. Um, you make a point that you believe that Brexit, or a no-deal Brexit, is the most likely outcome, and get this, the best outcome for the UK and Europe. Could you explain that? No-deal Brexit is not a no-deal Brexit. What it means is that from the end of March, um, the UK would be negotiating week by week or month by month um, what it's going to get in return for continuing to pay into the EU. So it's going to be a series of lots of mini-deals. Now, why I think that's better than any other solution to the present impasse on the table is that, first of all, if the UK was to agree to anything like the present or a, a more diluted form of Brexit, that would be a huge um, setback for the Conservative Party, whose popular base does depend on working class nationalist support. So if we see any further dilution, the potential for a far left government in the UK um, increases quite substantially. Secondly, uh, any sort of diluted or delayed Brexit is a big win for the status quo in Europe, in particular for Chancellor Merkel. Um, by contrast, if we have a no-deal outcome, that would be quite a serious setback for Chancellor Merkel and could really bring change and a shift to the right in Germany and a much more economic reform-minded type government. So th those are the sort of considerations why I, I, I see the no-deal Brexit as superior to the other alternatives. What is your sense of timing? We know that uh, Theresa May has to come back to Parliament on Monday with her revised plan. Um, what do you expect that plan to be, and what do you expect the timing to be of whatever negotiations may take place between the UK and the EU? Well, there's a lot of bluff here, of course, as, as negotiations uh, have in, intrinsically and I don't expect any serious concessions to be made from the EU or for the UK government under Prime Minister May to be making any big shift um, much short of March the 31st and probably after that you see I believe that the EU is now convinced that the May government is so weak um, they really don't have to make any concessions that the UK government's going to move towards a dilution or delay. So if the UK government is to get anything better than what's on the table, um, they have to prove that they're serious. So my central scenario here is that there may be a few days or weeks of a no-deal Brexit, and then the real talking begins. 
So I guess the, the question that I have is, couldn't the uh, the European Union push back the deadline, right? I mean, that's basically one theory is that they're going to push back the deadline so that negotiations continue for the United Kingdom. Why isn't that the best outcome? Why isn't it, you know, give them more time, hash it out, maybe well, get a new government? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we've already had two years. Um, <laughs> it was obvious eighteen months. It was obvious eighteen months ago that um, the uh, German and French governments were not going to be very accommodating to UK aspirations for a, a free trade agreement. So another three months is a sign of weakness at this stage. If the UK government is to uh, impress on the EU counterparts that they're serious and they're not prepared to make any further concessions and are not going to accept the present terms, then this really delay is a sign of weakness. And and in the other big news of the day, China, we we already see that to some extent, in that delaying raising tariffs uh, can be interpreted as a sign of weakness on the other side. That's always a problem with uh, delay in in high-wire negotiations. So it seems like, the, you know, this is impacting Europe as well. Uh, ECB President Draghi warned about negative rates for the remainder of the year. Really quickly, Professor, I understand you don't support that negative rate environment. No, the, the negative rate environment in Europe is essentially there um, to be a gravy train into Italy and prevent Italy, Italian exit from the European Monetary Union. And of course, the main backer and the essential backer of that is um, Chancellor Merkel, who accepts negative interest rates for that purpose. But negative rates in Germany are a total absurdity. Why should German savers be accepting negative rates when the economy is at full stretch, although it was a bit weaker in the second half of last year? And essentially, they're paying a heavy price for this. Dr. Brennan Brown, thank you so much. I remember when people thought it was an absurdity, uh, and now yet we have $8.5 trillion of absurdity out there of negative yielding debt outstanding. Just shocking to think about it. Dr. Brennan Brown, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, coming to us from London. Thank you so much for being with us with the non-consensus view that a no-deal Brexit is actually probably the best option given what else is out there right now. A big story overnight, uh, Elon Musk coming out and saying that he has a very rough road ahead of him. He's going to cut 7% of its staff, highlighted the difficulties of making money and as well as efficient electric vehicles in this current era. Joining us now, Kevin Tynan, senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us from Skillman, New Jersey. I'm just wondering, Kevin, I'm looking at the shares of Tesla down 9% today. Bonds hanging in there. What's your read on this uh, cut in staff? Will this give Tesla the boost that it needs to survive? Uh, Well, no, that's not what's going to do it, right? What's going to do it is uh, having a larger addressable market with more affordable vehicles. Um, So, you know, what strikes me about um, headcount reduction at this point in time, right, we're still waiting on Model Y, uh, a pickup truck, uh, a roadster, a semi-truck, right? So we have all these products and supposedly capacity coming online, not to mention China, um, yet we're cutting back on headcount. Kevin, you know, when you and I have talked about Tesla in the past, um, 
you know, you've always said to me uh, over the, which I thought made a lot of sense, which is technology is easy, uh, manufacturing is hard, and I think we've seen that time and time again with Tesla. They have obviously have a fantastic products. Consumers love it. What are you know, is there a scenario where you see Tesla being able to scale its manufacturing to really satisfy de the, the demand as that demand grows out there? Right. And, and that's the key word, Paul, scale, right? In, in the automotive space, that's it, right? There's no margin here. It's all about scale. And again, this goes back to the idea of this $35,000, which is roughly the average transaction price in the U.S. of this $35,000 Model 3, because you know, up in $50,000 range plus where where Model 3s are transacting mostly now, your adjustable market is very different than what it is at 35000 Now, the issue is you can, you can sell $35,000 electric vehicles arguably, but can you do it profitably? And I think this is the what's interesting, you know, and you mentioned it in the lead-in is that this makes them look like every other automaker, right? And that's been my other point on them is that they are an auto manufacturer. They're going to have auto, auto manufacturing issues. They're going to have margin issues. They're going to have demand issues. So the idea is if they can get to $35,000 for a Model 3 and do it profitably, then they can get to scale. So, Kevin, one aspect of this is the tax credit that the U.S. is offering to own electric vehicles, uh, that it got cut in half. How much is that part of what's driving this latest bout of weakness at Tesla? I think it's Part of it, I've, I haven't been, um, I haven't looked at it like that's a real demand killer or driver for them, just because of where the transaction prices have been. Right, this is this is um, typically a buyer that is not hinging on that tax credit to make a difference of whether they're buying or not. Now, at $35,000, is that a different scenario? Maybe, but I'm not sure if you have you know, a $35,000 vehicle buyer that you're even eligible for that full credit anyway, in most cases. So um, I haven't really modeled that in as being um, as much of a demand driver or killer as maybe others have. Look, I, and again, the transaction price is a big deal. Uh, the credit's expiring, but, you know, you, there's fundamental issues with recharge times. Um, you know, that infrastructure, where is it? Just the, the daily management of keeping your vehicle charged uh, is probably as big a concern to a lot of people. Right. So, Kevin, just give us a quick summary of what the big global audio manufacturers are, are doing in the electronic vehicle market. Yeah. So, so, and we've talked about this a ton too, Paul, is that, is that, and I think there's this misconception between inability and inactivity. And I think a lot of the automakers are looking at what Tesla does and, and you know, that P&L and saying, hey, look, I'm in, not in a huge rush to run into that market. If this proves profitable at average transaction prices in the range where we want to be, maybe that's $35,000 will invest in that strategy. But you got to keep in mind, right, this is a different production footprint. You, know, you have factories that are used to making internal combustion engines and body panels that house those combustion engines. Now you're, you're looking at changing that whole footprint to say we need factories yeah. specifically tooled for these kinds of vehicles. And you just haven't seen that commitment yet. Kevin Tynan, thank you so much for being with us. Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, talking about that with Tesla. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.